Welcome to Encounter. We want nothing more than to help you find and follow Jesus. If you're a college student in Central Illinois, join us Monday nights, ISU's campus. We'd love to see you there. Well, welcome everybody. Welcome to what I hope is the coldest night that we have encounter on through the entire winter. So good job for showing up. Uh, Check your neighbor for frostbite, okay, before you go home tonight. Uh, You might have seen it on the background of the video that uh, Phil put together with our staff talking about winter retreat. But we don't we don't say it out loud often, but we have this cute little mission statement as a staff and as a ministry. And it's pressing Jesus deep in the hearts of students so the gospel will take root in every corner of the world. Okay, that's I mean, I that I've heard that sentence so many times. And part of that really is because what we want to do in this space and in others is for Jesus to be deep in your world, in your life, in who you are as a human being, that that is the core, it's your deepest identity, is your identity of faith. That's just not one thing that you add on. Your role as a son and a daughter of the king really is the core definition of who you are. It changes everything about you. It's not just transactional. It's not just something that you do or add on as a part of your Sunday morning. It transforms you from the inside out. It's a full body transplant. Okay, and once that happens and that change happens with you, you're going to leave this place because you'll graduate at some point and you'll go to some other place and the gospel, the love of Jesus Christ will be alive and in you and it will take root in that spot that you're in and begin to grow fruit there and other places and in your families and in your future marriages and with your future kids. All of that stuff is beautiful, but the beginning of that is what it means to press Jesus deep, what, what he is pressed deep in us. And that's why, if you've been around these first six weeks of this semester, we're talking about exactly that. What does it mean to have a thriving, growing life of faith? Because I've met so many people who, I mean, like, who've grown up in church, who are very church, that come out of families that were in church, you know, six nights a week. And for people who have had nothing to do with church, and they've only seen it kind of from the, the outside in, Both of them drastically often misunderstand who Jesus was and what he came to do. And there's just so many different messages and messaging out there about what Jesus is and who Jesus is and what he came to do. And so really these first six weeks, we're trying to simplify that and help you understand this is what the Christian life looks like, speaking it as plainly as I know how to. And I don't often say this to you, but I'm I'm preaching these in order for a very specific reason. And so if you weren't, this is week three, and if you weren't here week one or two, I would encourage you to go back to our podcast and listen because they're foundational. It's not that tonight won't make sense without the other two. It'll just make more sense with the other two. So I'd push you toward that, okay? But the first week, we talked about how the Christian life is like a tree. It's organic and mysterious, but there is structure to it. And we want to send our roots down deep, and we want to grow and be able to withstand drought and produce fruit. God does those things in us. And last week, we talked, I mean, this was the important one, okay? We talked about grace, the love of Christ, this, this truth that you are seen by the God of the universe. You are known by the God of the universe. You are forgiven. You're loved. That, that is the motive of the Christian life. All right, that, that's the deepest thing. I seriously, could, I could say that every week and then just be done. That is the deepest part of the Christian faith, that you are seen, known, forgiven, and loved. And we talked about that last week. As a matter of fact, I gave you um, this graphic last week <clears throat> in terms of grace as we talked about it. 
And the idea, if the Christian life is like a tree, grace is the roots and the trunk. Everything is drawn up through that one idea of the grace and love of Jesus Christ. We could call it the love of Christ. We could call it the gospel. We could call it the good news. I'm going to call it grace. That's how you're going to hear me talk about it. But as we grow, one of the common things that we see in everybody's life, again, these aren't my ideas. These come from Scripture. We see four things that grace will push you toward, always. It will push you toward God's truth, toward God's voice, toward God's community, and toward God's mission. And tonight we're going to talk about truth as the first one of those four things. Okay, but grace, remember if we talked about last week, how grace is constantly redirecting us, that it has gravity, it has force to it. It always pulls us toward those things, always. And each week as we unpack those, I think you'll understand a little bit more about what they mean. Tonight we're going to focus in on God's truth. So what I have to come back to at the very beginning and you've heard me say this from this, uh, the stage before because I think this is a really important part, like a, f- a foundational piece of what we understand the world as Christians. But Genesis 1:27, God says we're going to make men and women, we're going to make uh, in our image. We have a picture of the Trinity right in Genesis 1. And so you need to understand that you were created in the image of God. You're created in the image of God. You're wise like he is wise. You're not as wise as he is, okay? But you are wise like him. You're creative like him. You have the capacity to love and show compassion in ways that a hamster doesn't, okay? Hamster can feel things. Hamster's like, I'm hungry. Hamster can feel pain. A hamster can uh, maybe feel love. I don't really know. I, I have not had great relationships with hamsters in my life, okay? But probably, I don't know, they can feel affection, I'm sure. But a hamster doesn't wake up in the morning with this existential angst of what purpose was I put on this earth for? How do I make life better for hamsters globally? All right, these are not the thoughts that hamsters occupy themselves with. They were not created in the image of God like you were, like you were. And so culturally, right now, within, like secular humanism is sort of the, the philosophy of the day. And within that philosophy of the day, we think humans are pretty great. Matter of fact, we think humans are the answer to everything. That if we could all just gather together, we could solve every human problem that has ever been. That's the idea. Humans are great. And so, biblically, there's actually this idea in Genesis 1 that I I think the reason why that's true is because you were created in the image of your father. You have his DNA. You bear his resemblance. Okay? But Genesis 3... That's in one hand. I'm going to hold that truth out here in one hand. Genesis 3 tells us that we're broken, that we're flawed, that we sinned and chose against God, and then therefore down to our very DNA. We struggle with things now like with with drought and with cancer, and it's because all of creation itself was brought into that decay. And so if you came up to me and said, Ben, hey, do Christians believe that that human beings are basically good or human beings are basically evil? My answer to you would be, uh, yes. We believe both. We look out across humanity and we see, oh, these, these, these carry the dignity of being made in the image of God. Image bearers. Every person that you see, you can't look down on them because they bear the image just like you do. But at the same time, they're fractured, flawed. So you say, are humans great? Yeah, and terrible. 
And it's not just out there. You, some part of you, you're like, oh, Ben, I agree with you. I look at the world. and I, No, inside of you, internally. I'm talking about inside of you. Okay, now some of you are like, I don't like that. Really like this little talk until we went to that spot, okay? Give yourself a grade for me. Don't say it out loud. How good are you? A through F, okay? Go ahead. Give yourself a little number marking. 88%, 92%. I, listen, I'm going to guess that even some of you who think you're pretty great are still not giving yourself 100%. Why? Why? I mean that question, why? Why, if there is no standard of correct that we can't seem to measure up to, would we not give ourselves 100%? Well, the answer is because when I look inside of myself, I often, I mean, sometimes I think I do a pretty good job. And even in those moments, I would not rank myself super high because I understand that there's a higher standard. There's something baked into me that tells me that it's there. And I see that inner conflict that exists in me, in you. And I see it eight billion times over in the world. Okay? So when I look out and I see death and I see destruction and I see war and I see all this other stuff, I think, oh, that's just not out there. That's also in here. It's like this inner turmoil in me. And if you think you're alone in that, just listen to the Apostle Paul struggle with it. Okay? You're not alone. Paul in Romans 7 says this, I want to do what's right, but I can't. I want to do what's good, but I don't. I don't want to do what is wrong, but I do it anyway. But if I do what I don't want to do, I'm not really the one doing wrong. It's sin living in me that does it. I have discovered this principle of life, that when I want to do what is right, I inevitably do what is wrong. Can you relate? I love God's law with all my heart, but there is another power within me that is at war with my mind. This power makes me a slave to the sin that's still within me. What a miserable person I am. Who will free me from this life that is dominated by sin and death? I love that this passage doesn't end in that tone. See how Paul ends it? Thank God. The answer is in Jesus Christ, our Lord. The answer is in Jesus Christ, our Lord. So you see the, that inner turmoil, even in the Apostle Paul, where he talks about this, this sin. I mean, we use the word sin in the church, but it's like it's this decay, this brokenness that sits within me and the beauty of who God created me to be. All of those smashed into the same human being. That's where Jesus says, well, yeah, you need rescued from the one, and I'll turn you fully into the other. That's who you were designed to be. That is your meaning and your purpose in this world. That's who you are, God says. So tonight, why do we talk about God's truth? Why does grace draw us to God's truth? Well, because if we are flawed, we need to understand how important it is that God is not, that he is not subject to those same limitations, that he is not flawed. Go to Isaiah. My thoughts are nothing like your thoughts, says the Lord, and my ways are far beyond anything you could imagine. For just as the heavens are higher than the earth, so my ways are higher than your ways, and my thoughts are higher than your thoughts. He is not uh, confined by the same limitations that you and I are confined by. His ways and his thoughts sit out here, and that would be terrible news, you guys, except for the fact that he's willing to share his ways and his thoughts. Did you hear that? 
That seriously would be terrible news to be like, my ways are higher than your ways, my thoughts are higher than your thoughts, good luck. No, we have a God who wants to share his ways with you, wants to share what he knows with you, wants to share his truth with you, not because he's weird and demanding, because that's the way that you thrive in this world. He loves you. He's a good parent. Good parents give good rules. C.S. Lewis talks about God as the engineer. And uh, in the book Mere Christianity, he has a couple different passages that I thought were so good for tonight. So I'm going to throw them up on the screen for you. I want you to read along with me, okay? Not out loud. Just follow along. You don't have to try to read the whole thing with me. Here we go. God made us, invented us as a man invents an engine. A car is made to run on petrol. He was British, okay? And it would not run properly on anything else. Now God designed the human machine to run on himself. He himself is the fuel our spirits were designed to burn or the food our spirits were designed to feed on. There is no other. That's why it's just no good asking God to make us happy in our own way without bothering about religion. God cannot give us happiness and peace apart from himself because it is not there. So you understand, as the engineer who has designed the human machine... He just, like, if you're a car, he's the one who's designed it. And so he knows what it's supposed to run on. And he wants to share that information with you. Again, he's not, his ways are higher than your ways, but he wants to give you those ways. Lewis continues to say this. There is a story about a schoolboy who was asked what he thought God was like. He replied that, as far as he could make out, God was the sort of person who's always snooping around to see if anyone is enjoying himself and then trying to stop it. And I'm afraid that's the sort of idea that the word morality raises in a good many people's minds, something that interferes, something that stops you from having a good time. In reality, moral rules are directions for running the human machine. Every moral rule is there to prevent a breakdown, a strain, a friction in the running of that machine. That's why these rules at first seem to be constantly interfering with our natural inclinations. When you're being taught how to use any machine, the instructor keeps on saying, no, don't do it like that. Because, of course, there are all sorts of things that look all right and seem to you the natural way of treating the machine, but do not really work. You hear Lewis's point there? He's trying to say there are things that seem right to you. They seem natural to you. They seem intuitive to you that will break the machine, which is you. Things that you think you should chase that you're like, that that God looks down and he's like, don't, child, do not chase that. Do not chase that. That is a dead-end road that I do not want you on, God says. Longest book of the Bible. Anybody know what it is? Psalm what? Just chapter, sorry, not book, chapter. Longest chapter of the Bible. 119. Handful of you know it, okay? 176 verses. In that one book, it's long, the, that chapter of Psalms is longer than other books in the Bible, okay, as long as the book of Philippians. Crazy. And it's poetry. It's poetry. 176 verses that are all about poetry. So if you're going to sit down and write <clears throat> 176 verses, almost a book's worth of poetry, what are you going to write it on? Love, beauty, sunsets, animals, I don't know, family, honor victory, the stuff that you write poetry about, right? You want to know what Psalm 119 is about? Rules. 
It's about God's rules. It's a book of poetry in Psalms that's unbelievably long about God's rules. Let me give you some specifics here because I find it fascinating. David uses the word law 25 times. He uses the word word 43 times. Judgments 23 times. Testimonies 23 times. Commandments 22 times. He says things like this. Excuse me. I rejoice in your rules. They bring me delight. They bring me, they bring life to me. Your rules. You with me? He's saying, God, your rules bring life to me. I don't get it. (laughs) It seems so counterintuitive. Uh, Your rules bring happiness. I cling to your commandments. I meditate on them. I lay awake at night thinking about them. God's rules, David's saying. I love them. I long for them. Over and over and over again, David says that these rules that God has breathe life back into him. Man, are you confused yet? Rules to me are always limiting. Rules to me are always those things that tell you what you can't do. It's like here are all the things at the pool that you're not supposed to do. That's the list of rules, right? How do they bring life, breathe life? Verse 45, I think, is the, is the climax of the insanity where David says, your rules bring freedom. Huh. Your rules bring freedom. Had to sit with that one for a while. Your rules bring freedom to me, God. What in the world do you mean? And David isn't alone. Isaiah praises God as the lawgiver. Um, Paul talks in that same chapter, Romans 7, about how in his inner being he's delighted by the law of God. I mean, man, Isaiah, David, Paul, what are you guys seeing that I don't see? Because I, like, I don't sit around and think about speed limits and be like, man, life-giving, wonderful, love those things. No. Well, let me tell you the first of a handful of stories I got to you tonight. I, I talked about mountaineering last week. Let me, let me tag a story onto that, okay? I went, right as I was finishing up college, I got invited to do some English camps stuff, like some missions work uh, for a summer, in, mostly in the Czech Republic, um, all of it in Eastern Europe. So Czech Republic, Slovakia, Poland, kind of that, that area that was in there. So I spent most of my summer there. And there was a weekend that we were going to Slovakia and taking a group of high school students up into the mountains, okay? And and it was beautiful, crazy beautiful, like we were up in the clouds in these mountains. And so I want to describe, it's going to take me a really long time to tell you a story that happened in like three seconds, okay? So the, the path that we were on, I need you to understand, was not really all that dangerous. It was exposed. I mean, there were parts where you would walk up to the edge, and it really was, if you fell off, you would fall to your death. But the path itself was probably at least 15 feet wide in most places. So if you wanted to walk up to the edge and be like, wow, that's a long way down, you could. But you didn't have to. So it really wasn't, I mean, I, I want you to understand this because you'll need this for the story. It was a dangerous hike, but it wasn't. Sort of a choose-your-own-adventure. How close do you want to be to that edge, right? And we take this entire group up to the top. There's about six or seven of us leaders and maybe, I don't know, 12 to 15 kids. And uh, I wasn't really in charge of anybody on the way down. And one of the other girls on our team who happened to be in the Army, okay, this, that also comes into play because she was in way better physical shape than I was at the time. She was a runner. And she said at the top, I think I'm going to run down. And I was like, that sounds fun. I'll try that too, okay? Thus starts the story, okay? So she takes off running, and I'm like, oh, wait, she can run, 
Like this, per- this is a human being that can actually run. I was just kind of kind of controlled fall down the mountain. That was my plan. Okay, so as this story unfolds, I'm jogging on this kind of wide trail, but keep in mind, it's exposed. I mean, you're not like falling straight down, but you are not going to, you're like, you're going to hit and fall and, and roll and fall. It, if you fall off this edge, it is to your death, okay? That's the, that's the edge of where we're at. And as we're jogging down this thing, she's probably 40 yards ahead of me at this point. And there is an older guy, late 60s, I would guess, with a walking pole in his left hand, who's walking about this far from the edge, okay? And he's just chilling, like doing his own little pace with his walking stick like this. And she's, you know, she's kind of in about the same spot that he is as she's coming up on him. And this is what I see from behind, okay? I see her jogging up, and as she gets to him, who knows why she decides to pass him on the right, okay? So she goes out to the right along this edge, And he hears, at the same time, someone coming. And so out of common courtesy, he takes a step to the right, okay, to help her. Because who in their right mind would be passing him on the right? And the moment that I saw his momentum go that direction, and I, like, all of it, you know, goes into slow motion in your head. Because I watch her, as she tries to come around him, she hits his right shoulder, and it it slightly changes her momentum but off that edge, okay? And I can't do anything. Like, and this dude, this is miraculous, you guys. I don't know who, Angel, I don't know who this dude was, okay? This old man, as he gets hit by her like, like this, reaches out, grabs her shoulder, and redirects her back on that path, throws her back onto the path without missing a beat. Gets hit, grabs her, throws her, and she keeps running, okay? <laughs> I stop. I'm standing there. She keeps running and turns around and goes, thanks, and kept going down the mountain. And I, like, gingerly jogged past that guy, and we both shared a look that was like, what did we just witness? <laughs> like, I don't even... Seriously, I... It happened, okay? I don't know if I'd believe it if I were sitting in your seat, but that is exactly the way that all of that went down. And I I say all of that because it amazed me how slight the momentum change was there, the direction change for her. It wasn't a lot. It wasn't a lot, but it was life or death. That little bit of energy change off that course, she should have been dead. And that little bit of momentum change back on course was life or death to her absolutely life or death to her. And the reason why I have these lines up here tonight is because I want to illustrate that for you. I want to illustrate for you these different ways that lead to life and that lead to death. There is a specific verse in Proverbs 14 that says, there is a path before each person that seems right, but it ends in death. And the God of the universe cares so much about that for you that he hasn't kept quiet about what those paths are. As a matter of fact, he's filled this whole word. There's so much truth that sits in here from a God whose ways are higher than your ways, where he's like, I don't want to make this a mystery to you. There are things about relationships that will cause so much pain, and I want to give you, give you instructions. Not like, I don't mean like, uh, like, 
game board instructions where it's like there's a play-by-play of every situation you're ever going to come across. He's like, no, this is a path to knowing me and how you can do life in this universe and the principles that you need to live by that are going to protect you, that will be life-giving to you. Because there is a way that seems right to you, but that in the end it leads to death. This white line and this red line seem the same to you, but, but God is saying, no, that's not the case. One of them leads to death, and one of them leads to life. And a small redirect you don't understand can change the whole course of your life. Why are we doing winter retreat and talk about reframing love? Because I want your future marriages to be successful. This is the best way that I know how to do that for you, to help you launch well, even if it's not marriages, good friendships, restored friendships, healing, wholeness, How can you chase that? We're like, let's put a retreat on. Why? Because the things that are intuitive to you and to me may lead to death if we don't lean in and say, God, what's your truth have to say about this? There's a way that seems right to you. And I got to tell you, at the beginning of this, these paths don't look all that much different, but the further they go, the wider they get, and one leads to death and one leads to life. One is on that path and one is off of that path. It's a small momentum shift between the two. Let me tell you a couple stories just to illustrate, unless I'm jumping ahead of myself. No, I think that's good. Um, When Elijah was really young, I don't remember exactly how young, maybe four or five, okay? He spent the night at his grandma's house with his cousin. He's 22 now, okay? So a little time has passed, but he, um, excuse me, he, at age four, we had, like, you know, protections and stuff on our internet. Grandma's house, not so much, okay? So he goes over there, and he and his cousin watch this YouTube video. We didn't know about this for a while after, by the way. But they watch this YouTube video that is like this nasty, scary clown chasing people through the woods, okay? That's the, vid- that's the video that he uh, sees as a, as a four-year-old. <clears throat> I say I didn't know about that because all I knew was that when he came home, he couldn't sleep was that when he came home, he couldn't be alone in dark places. When he came home, he wouldn't go in our basement. Like, all I knew was that his behavior had changed significantly for a small little four-year-old boy. I found this video later. I was tempted to play it tonight, okay? Just because you guys, as adults, would see how dorky it is. It is not that scary of a video, but it is to a four-year-old is life-transforming to a four-year-old who does not have all of the, the, I don't know, history to process, the experience to process what is real and what is not. Actually, some of you would probably still be freaked out by it, but that's okay, all right? So here's the thing. Elijah at that age, every kid at that age is like, I don't need your stupid internet protections. I don't need this. I can watch this. I can take this in, except they can't. There's a way that seems right to them, but you guys— Not being able to go into our basement by himself lasted for two years. Developmentally was hard on my boy. It broke my heart as a dad. One stupid little video. And we still have internet protections on some of our other stuff, and it's funny the conversations that I have with my kids. You know, it's like an 11-year-old who has no idea, no idea the grand scope of what you can find on the internet. And they're like, I don't need all these stupid filters. Why can't I find? It's like, you just do. 
You just do. I don't know that I can explain it to you, except there are things I don't want you to fall into yet. I can't even explain them all to you quite yet. There's a way that seems right to you, but that in the end it leads, it leads to death and addiction and difficulty and pain and decay. I had a, a good friend, good friend, who was married, had kids, um, and got bored. Kind of hit midlife crisis and started to have just kind of these sexual rendezvous where he would uh, he'd, he'd go out and have these sexual encounters with other women um, and he kept this up, if I remember right, for about two years, uh, at least every week, okay? Um, and eventually, what happened, as what always happens, was, you know, somebody found a text message somewhere, and somebody saw something that he thought he had hidden, and then his whole world came crashing in, you guys, and all of that came flooding out, and there were STDs, and there were, his kids never wanted to see him again, and he had to walk through a really painful divorce, and every friendship that he had faltered in that moment, because nobody's like, ugh, I have, it's hard to have compassion when you see somebody self-destruct. What is crazy about that is, do you want to know why he chased that? Freedom. He wanted freedom. He, the rules were, were closing in on him, the vows that he had in his marriage were too much in that point to be like, I just want to, they're oppressive. I want to break free. I want to be done with the rules. Well, when I sat with him, do you want to know what he said to me? He said, I feel like I'm in a prison right now. And everything I love has been taken from me. And it's like, man, you built that prison. Brick by brick by brick, you built that prison. What starts off on this line, my friends, every time is chasing freedom. And it's not till we get further down that line and we hit that wall where we begin to understand what David said when he says, oh, it's actually your rules that bring freedom. Because if you want, let me stand between these for just a moment. I cannot, I cannot want love and trust and care and concern and intimacy with my wife and at the same time destroy our marriage vows. I can't have both. And the moment that I say, you know what? My marriage vows are restrictive. I don't want to live with those. I don't like those. I can jump to this red line, but I can't have this. To go back to what C.S. Lewis said, you can park your car in a lake if you want, all right? I mean, you have the freedom to do that, total freedom. You can park wherever you want, but you can't expect to drive your car tomorrow. It doesn't work that way. There were rules about water and combustible engines. So you have to choose. And my friend, as far as he got down this trail, suddenly found that he had burned everything that he loved. And he did it in the name of freedom. What a terrible, horrible mistake all of that was. Okay, let me give you a different example, one that might hit a little closer to the college home. Um, a girl who I talked to in my office recently, not, not this year, but recently, who said, I, d I don't have friendships. My roommates, I feel like they're all against me. Uh, I don't understand how this has happened. I feel like I'm trying to reach out. Um, now, if I had never had any other conversations or I didn't know anything about her 
or I didn't know anything about her roommates, then that might have been, you know, it might have been easy to be like, man, what terrible people they are. No, that's not really what I do in meetings. But, like, in that, I happened to know that this was a girl who'd struggled with gossip and lying and slander. And what was difficult is that for years she had chosen a path of mocking other people, putting other people down. When they weren't in the room, she would trash them. And then when they're back in the room, she would trash other people to that person. And the difficulty was she truly, desperately wanted intimate, deep, close friendships. But everything that she was doing was train wrecking what was happening for the future. And you guys, our Lord weeps over that. Not because he's ticked off at you, because he's a good dad who does not want to see you endure that pain. You can walk, you have the freedom to walk this red line if you want to. You do. You have the freedom. But do not expect that your human machine will not break down over and over and over again. Our God is a good God who loves you dearly, and he filled this thing with ways to run your human machine. Our culture doesn't get it. It's not the same. But this sits on a deeper level because there is a way that seems right to you, but in the end it leads to death every time. Every time. And out of mercy for us, God says, no, 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 no. I am more than happy to reveal to you my truth. More than happy to reveal to you my ways that are higher than your ways. I don't want to hide them from you. His word, it's not just something for us to memorize. It's not just something for us to study. It's not just something for us to sit back and celebrate how much we know about theology. His word, 2 Timothy says, is inspired by God and useful to teach us what's true, to make us realize what's wrong in our lives. It corrects us when we're wrong and teaches us to do what's right. The Hebrews author says, the word of God is alive and powerful, sharper than the sharpest two-edged sword, cutting between soul and spirit, between joint and marrow. It exposes our innermost thoughts and desires. Do you hear what the Hebrews author is saying there? He's saying it's surgical. It's like a scalpel that God uses in your life to help you understand right from wrong, to help you know good path from bad path. Because he loves you. It's not just because he's some weird law freak that wants you to live the way that he thinks you should live. No, he's the creator of the human machine. And as we dive into the love of Christ, just like in my marriage, as I dive into the love of my wife, it doesn't make me want to dishonor my vows. The more I dive into what it means to love my wife, the more those vows actually become more important to me. And the more that grace pulls us into the life in Christ, the more we begin to understand that his truth is for our benefit. You with me? For our benefit. There are some people in the Christian world, man, truth, you are good at truth. You like to speak it. You like to beat people up with it. Um, Truth without grace is an ugly beast. You are not the morality police of our world. You are not the morality police of each other. Truth without grace. The, the people who practice truth, truth without grace in Jesus' world were the Pharisees. And those are the people that he had the shortest temper with. He was very, very quick to put the Pharisees in their place. Truth without grace. You've seen plenty of truth without grace Christians online. They are more than happy to destroy every argument that sits in front of them, all right? 
keyboard, keyboard warriors that sit there. No, we are grace people, and truth is a part of that, but it's God's truth that we are elevating, and all of it, thro- it flows through the gospel of grace. It has to, or we distort it. We're grace people, but grace draws us toward God's truth. So if you come to me and you say, hey, I'm really following God, but I think I want to do my own thing when it comes to my relationship with my girlfriend. I don't know that I want to deal with what the Bible has to say about this. Like, I, I don't know. There's, a, there's an improper perspective then on what you think about God. As you're drawn toward his love, you shouldn't be running from what he says is right and the ways that he puts out there. And again, not as a judgy thing against you, but because as, as your dad, he loves you dearly. All right, a couple more things and then I'm done tonight. In my experience, there are typically three, type of pe- three types of people probably in this room, okay? One, and this applies to most of, most of us, um, these are people who uh, are trying to follow the white line, but often you find yourselves on the red, you know? You're like, I, I want to do what is right, and then like you sit down in a moment in worship or communion or prayer or whatever, just a quiet moment, and, and you're convicted when you're like, oh, man. I shouldn't have done that, or said that, or thought that, or God, the Holy Spirit convicts you. If that's you, can I just tell you this? Welcome to the club. Nobody, nobody's just on the white line together. Do you remember where we started with Paul, and he's talking about, I want to do the right thing, but I find myself doing the wrong thing. All of us in this room are struggling toward the Lord, myself included. So we want to do the right thing. We find ourselves on the wrong path, and we have to say, hey, sorry, God, I'm going to leave that behind, and I'm going, to, I'm going to jump back over again. Welcome to the Christian life. Do not live a life of shame if you find yourself jumping back and forth at times, all right? Praise Jesus that he gives us grace for that. Again, we're a people of grace. As a matter of fact, I love Proverbs 24, 16. It says, though the righteous fall seven times, they rise again, but the wicked are brought down by calamity. So do you, know what, uh, do you know what the difference between the righteous and the unrighteous is? They both fall. The righteous just keep getting up. Just get back on the white line. Say, God, I'm sorry. Help me understand your ways. I know they're higher than my ways. Help me walk that path. So if that's you, you're in good company. The second type of person is a person with their hand constantly on both lines where they're like, I don't even know if I want what's God's. I, I want, I see it. There's a part of that that I want. And, but there's a part of this red line that I just want a death grip on, all right? So I'll go to church on Sundays. That's my hand on the white line. But every other part of my life, I want to I party. I want to do what I want to do sexually. I don't, want, I don't want God to have any words over any other part of my life. You guys, I will tell you, there may be no, mis- no more miserable place to be in this world than that. Hand on each line and not really knowing which way you want. One foot in heaven and one foot in hell and indecision that stands between it. You won't stay there long. God doesn't want that for you. And the last person is this, and I think this is rare, but I'm going to say it anyway. These are people who are hell-bent to be on this line. You give them these two paths, they'll choose the red one every time. You look at their actions, that is what they do. And the only thing I have to tell you tonight is be very cautious. Be very cautious about accepting wisdom from that person, and please don't marry them. Please don't marry them. It's kind of funny, but it's also not. That will bring a kind of pain and destruction further down that red line than you even possibly understand, that I have lived with friends, okay? God, in his great mercy, through his grace, as you fall in love with him, will draw you to his truth. 
And if you're running away from that tonight, or if you've misunderstood him for a really long time, and you're like, I've always thought it's just been about his moral list. No, he's the one who made you, your machine, the human machine. And he knows what you run on, and it is himself. And that's why he's given us his word. So we can trust it. We can trust it more than we trust ourselves. We can chase it. God doesn't like to see his kids caught in pain and misery. And so as we lean in, you guys, to that idea that we are seen, that we're known, that we're forgiven, and we're loved, and as we grow in that, we find ourselves being drawn to a God who says, my ways are higher than your ways, and I will reveal them to you, and you can chase them with me, with me. And then we do that together. Let's pray. Father, thank you for revealing yourself through your word. Uh, Thank you for marking out the path for for us in advance. Thank you for knowing the difference between life and death. And thank you for revealing that path to us to walk in, Jesus. And I pray as we take these little baby steps toward you of trying to understand you and understand your truth, that you would take a million steps toward us, Christ. So Holy Spirit, I pray that you take this and make it tangible for every person in the room. Speak a unique sermon tonight to each heart. We love you. Put all this in front of you in your name, Christ. Amen. Thanks for listening. Find out more about Encounter and ways to get involved at isuencounter.org.